silence. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes silence is awkward. You're in a conversation, everyone's chatting and talking, and then silence. We call that awkward silence. Silence can be good. Sometimes silence can be bad. Maybe you're the type when you're sleeping, it needs to be completely silent. Does anybody like that? No noise, nothing, completely silent. How many of you are the opposite? You need noise. You need something. You need a baby crying. You need a car crashing outside. You need to hear the smog in the air. You just you need something. Maybe that's you. Silence is good. And you're, if you're in a library and you're trying to focus, it's hard to focus sometimes when you're trying to study and there's noise taking place. Sometimes silence is good when you're checking to see if your kid is asleep. You want to hear silence. You don't want to hear crying. You don't want to hear banging. You want it to be silent. Sometimes, though, silence is not welcome in a home. Perhaps if you're talking to somebody one-on-one -on -one and you ask them a question and there's silence. You're on the phone and you're in a conversation and you ask them a certain question, maybe a serious question, and then silence on the other end. Maybe you're texting somebody, you ask them a question, and then you see the little dots come up and down. And it says, message read. So you know they've seen your question, and you're waiting for their reply, and then they never reply. Silence. You're speaking to your spouse, and they're not responding. Sometimes silence is good. Sometimes silence isn't all that it's cracked up to be. Now imagine being Israel, the children of Israel. Imagine being where they were hundreds of years ago. You've been hearing that one day a Messiah will come. One day this Messiah will come to earth and he will rule and reign and all heartache and misery will all be gone. One day all this turmoil, this bondage will come to rest. One day, all will be well. No more fighting, no more wars, just peace and joy. Or so they thought. Israel, as we know the history of Israel, they were constantly kind of going up and down. They were living for God one day, and the next day they were worshiping idols, and they were worshiping themselves, and they were following false gods, and they find themselves in bondage again. And then after some time, a prophet comes by and reminds them what they need to do. You got to repent, turn back to God, and He will deliver you. And that's what they would do. They would repent, their hearts would get right. God would send in sometimes a judge to come in and rescue Israel from their peril. But give them a couple years, and the cycle repeats itself. It wasn't too long before God was fed up, and their timeline was coming to an end where God looked and he allowed for the northern tribe to be captured by the Assyrians. And they would come in and they would literally capture and they would destroy a lot of the things that they, that they considered sacred and holy. They would come in and destroy. Hundred and maybe 50 years or so later, the southern tribe, who was doing a little better for the Lord, they had some pretty good kings in there that prolonged their bondage, but eventually they too fell into the hands 
of the Babylonians. God allowed the Babylonian Empire to sweep through the nation, come in and take over the southern tribe and really take over much of Israel. We see an example of this in Daniel chapter 1, in verse, uh, chapters 1 through 4, where da Daniel was part of one of the, the group when the Babylonians came in and they captured many of the, the, the children of Israel. They captured the, the best ones that they considered to be, that they could train to be wise men for them someday. Daniel was a part of that group. And from Daniel's chapter 1 through 4, we kind of see a history of what it was like to live with the Babylonians. They seemed to be wealthy and a powerful people. Led by Nebuchadnezzar II, the Babylonians would defeat the powerful Egyptian army and all their allies, including the Assyrians. And they would eventually take over all the trade routes all the way across the Mediterranean. They were the world power, the Babylonians. Nebuchadnezzar was responsible for erecting some pretty famous things that we see today, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, the Babylonian Walls, which are 56 miles long, the Ishtar Gates, all three of these being part of the seven wonders of the world. During the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, his grandson, his name is uh, transliterated as Evil Murdoch. Imagine that, you're transliterating, your name is Evil, <laughs> Evil Knievel. We see the Persian army taking control of the kingdom during the reign of Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. As he was ruling and reigning one day, we see in Daniel chapter 5, we have a very strange story where this uh, evil Murdoch, this uh, grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, was one day in the, in, in, uh, they were having this big feast and he was boasting and prideful about how great he was and Drunken in, a, in, a, in, a, in his drunken state, he asked his men to go into the temple, Solomon's temple, to go in and take out the, uh, well, take the things they had stolen from the temple, I should say. They went in, they took some of the treasuries and some of the, the cups and things, and they used that, and they defiled that which was supposed to be holy and sacred unto God. And at that moment in time, out of nowhere, what happened? This hand shows up, this floating hand, and writes on the wall, and to make that story short, the writing was basically predicting their fall. A new leader would come in and take over. We see in the same chapter, perhaps uh, around the same time that that hand came in, we see the Persians sweeping in and taking over and eventually defeating Babylon. They would fall under the hand of Cyrus the Great. Years later, Artaxerxes, king of Persia, permitted Ezra to lead his people and those who would go with him to return to Israel. At that time, most of the captives were living in Babylon. They were taken captive or they were destroyed. But under the order of Xerxes, he allowed Ezra to lead a group of people to go back to Jerusalem, to rebuild and live a life there. Eventually, Artaxerxes would encourage Ezra to reconstruct the temple and worship the Lord once again. About 15 or so years later, Artaxerxes then permitted a cupbearer named who? Nehemiah. To also lead a group of people to go back and to actually help rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the wall. We see the life of the Persians, example of their life and their lifestyle in the book of Esther. We get a taste of their wealth. Later on in the book of Daniel, we see Cyrus the Great, his uncle Darius, come to the throne and it was Darius that got tricked 
instead of throwing Daniel into the lion's den. We have a, a glimpse of some of the history that was taking place during the life of Israel. God had enough. He was through dealing with Israel. And at this time now, we come to our passage that we just read in Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5. It's during the reign of the Persian Empire we find Malachi writing the final words of prophecy. Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5, as we just read, the Bible says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Interesting, the last words in the Old Testament, the last word is that word curse. You see, all through Israel's history, we see them sin against God, and then God punishes them, then they go into captivity, then they repent and they start over and even when they were living right for God, they were constantly in a state of war, trying to protect their borders, trying to defend against the enemy. It seemed all throughout history there, was, there wasn't that much peace. There was a few kings that rose and that saw general peace throughout the land of Israel, but oftentimes there was wars, civil wars even. But given enough time, Israel would go back to their old ways. You know what? Despite Israel's inconsistencies, Despite their ups and their downs, despite all the time they spent in bondage, despite all the time they spent worshiping the wrong God, despite everything they had going against them, when Israel was in the darkest of times, they always had something to cling to. Something that the prophets would often remind them of. Some hope that would give them light at the end of the tunnel. Israel always knew that one day, a Messiah is coming. In Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3, we see here the messenger of God is being sent, the voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. In Isaiah 7, 14, therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. In Isaiah 6, 9, 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And Micah 5 and verse 2, But thou, Bethlehem Ephrata, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old from everlasting. Isaiah 35, verse 5, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then, the then shall the layman leap as in heart, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break out, and streams in the desert. And Isaiah 11:10, And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. And the prophet Zechariah in chapter 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly, riding upon an ass and upon the colts, the fowl of an ass. 
Zechariah would say in chapter 11, And I said unto them, If ye think good, give me my price, and if not, forbear. So they weighed for my price 30 pieces of silver. The prophet Isaiah, chapter 53, would say, He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We did esteem him, stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before the shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. David says in Psalms, Reproach hath broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness. And I looked for some to take pity, but there was none. And for the comforters, but I found none. They gave me also gall for my meats. And in my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. Daniel, the prophet, says, Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgressions and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and prophecies, and to anoint the most holy. Daniel says, continues, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man with the clouds of heaven, and came to the ancients of days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. Israel had these promises to look to. The Messiah one day would come. He would be born. He would suffer. He would be rejected. But he would establish his kingdom. He would conquer death. He would win and be victorious. He would break the bonds of death. He would rise over the grave and one day he would be king. And all would be well. But after Malachi in chapter 4, verse 5, gives his final prophecy, there was silence. For over 400 years, God was silent. At the end of Malachi, in between there all the way to Matthew, or in our case, to when Jesus was born, 400 and about 20 years, there was nothing. No word from God. No extra visions. No extra prophecies. Oh, they were still preaching. They were still preaching on repentance, and there were still people perhaps even turning to the Lord, but at that moment in time, 
as was mentioned in 1 Samuel chapter 3. And the child and the child Samuel ministered unto the Lord before Eli, and the word of the Lord was precious in those days. There was no open vision. It's just like it was in the days of Samuel, where there was a period of time where God was not revealing himself in any extra way to his people. They still had the scriptures. They had the prophets. They knew it was coming, but there was silence. There is a theology, or a false theology going around. It's called deism. Deism is this idea that God made us. He created us. He put us in order. He established the world. He established the laws. He put everything in order. And once the world was working well by itself, then God stepped back and he just let the world do its thing. And they believe even to this day, God has no involvement in his creation. There's no point in praying to God because he stepped back. And this is one way they have to explain why maybe there's sin in the world and why there's death and why there's destruction because God has pulled his hand away from the world. But that's not in the Bible. We can't deny, you can't even complete the word of God and believe such a thing because God is still working. He's still moving amongst his people. And even during this intertestinal time, God was still doing some things. He was still controlling traffic, so to speak. He was still making sure his will was done. He was preparing the way for something greater to happen. But there was still a long period of silence. Have you ever felt alone before? Maybe you felt like God's not there. Maybe you've had times where you feel like you're, you're praying, but it's just kind of hitting the ceiling and coming back. Maybe there's times in your life where you felt like perhaps God is just silent in your life. Maybe you've been through a hard time and you just didn't feel like God was there. Maybe you lost a loved one. You just felt so empty inside. Maybe you just got real sick, or you know someone close that's been sick. Maybe you went through a heavy time of depression, and you felt like you're the only person left on the earth. Maybe there are times you just felt unwanted, unloved, uncared for. Even though circumstances around may say otherwise, you still felt that emptiness inside. Well, you know, we all go through silent years. We all go through times where we may feel that way. Some go through it much harder than others. Sometimes circumstances allow you to feel even greater depression and greater loneliness than others. You, maybe you come from a broken home. You come from uh, diseases and plagues. And maybe you have things and circumstances may feel, make your silent years make, make them much worse. Maybe right now you're, in, you're going through a silent year. A year where you feel like is God there? If I could point you to Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5. The Bible says, Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. If you are a child of God tonight, let me rest assured that God will never leave you. It may seem like he's not there. 
It may seem like you're the only person left on earth. It may seem like the world is so distant and far from you. But I can rest assured that God is still there. And God is still watching. And God would never abandon you. Maybe there's someone here that has never actually experienced the joy of Christ. Maybe you've always kind of lived in a state of emptiness. Maybe you've always kind of been searching for the truth. Maybe you've tried different religions. You've tried to read this book and listen to this guy and turn the radio to that station there. And you've, you've tried different things and you still kind of feel that, that emptiness inside. You've never even experienced the joy of Christ that you can experience and that many in this room have experienced and even are experiencing now. And you know what? It just so happens I know someone that could fill that void. I know someone that could fill that emptiness inside, that could fill it. It's the Messiah. It's Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 1. In fact, if you can turn there, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 1. The Apostle Paul addresses such a subject. People who were searching, people who didn't really know what exactly it was that could fill their void. They had questions, and Paul addresses this here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 1. Boy, we could read this whole chapter, but we'll just read the first couple of verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 1, the Bible says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. There's three kinds of people you see in this passage. There's those who have already accepted Christ. And the terminology we use is you're saved. Saved from your sins. So there are those that are saved. There are those that, as he says, have been saved in vain. Those that have said words. They, you know, they, they believe that there's a God. They believe in Jesus and They've probably a couple times in your life asked him to forgive you of some sins, but it's, it's mostly head knowledge. There's never been a real time in your life where you've truly given your heart and your life to God. You've believed him in vain. And then there's a third type who just don't know it all. And Paul presents to us the gospel, which is simply the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christmas time is here for us to focus on one aspect, and that is our Savior, the Messiah, who came to earth as a baby. He was born. He was raised. He was suffered among men, as we read from the prophets of old. He was whipped. He was beaten. He was crucified on a cross. He went all the way and did all that. Why? Because he loves you. Just as an example, back in the Old Testament times when People would do something wrong. They had to sacrifice a, a lamb without blemish, a perfect animal based on, it wasn't just a lamb. Sometimes it was different animals based on how much money they made, but a lamb was given and it had to be their best. That lamb was innocent. It didn't do anything wrong. 
but it had to be killed for the sins of mankind. That's not fair. The animal shouldn't have to die for something I did. And yet Jesus, seeing our sins, the things that we've done, all the commandments that we've broken, all the times we've been selfish, all the times that we've disobeyed our parents, all the times that we've done 30 things and we've stolen and we've cheated, all the, th- all the wrong things that we've done, whether we think them big or small, it doesn't matter. They're all sins of God. And God looked at us and said, we need to get our sins forgiven. But we don't sacrifice animals anymore. Because God, the perfect lamb, already sacrificed himself for us. Jesus Christ, he was innocent, just like that lamb. He was perfect, just like that lamb. He was without blemish. He came. He went all the way to the cross. He died a horrible, gruesome death for you and for me. And in that moment on the cross, he was taking upon us the sins of the world, past, present, and future, so that one day, whosoever will may call upon the name of the Lord, and they shall be saved. That's the gospel. You or I today can know God for sure. You can have a relationship with him. You can have that joy inside. This is the gospel that we speak to you today. You can this morning come forward. You could even do it in your seats. And you can say, Lord, I know what you did for me. I know that you are God. I know that you came to earth. You lived. You died on that cross. I know you're perfect. And Lord, forgive me of my sins. Help me to live my life for you. You can know God for sure. Israel was waiting for that Messiah to come. How long did God stay silent? Now we come to Luke chapter 1. Our last passage this morning. Now we come to the conclusion. They waited And they waited 420 years. Oh, a lot of things happened during those 420 years. Big part of it was called the Maccabees period, where Israel would come together under this family, the Hasmonean family, would later become known as the, the Maccabees, which is a Hebrew word for hammer. This family would get together and they began to cause a revolt against Uh, those who were in charge, the the Persians, the Grecians, and they would fight and be at war against them. And they would, for a time, actually see some peace with Israel. Lots of bloodshed, lots of uh, Hellenism, as they say. The Jews began to, uh, their culture began to integrate with a lot of um, uh, all the other cultures that were around them. Some of the Jews were starting to lose their identity and who they were. Oh, there was lots of ups and downs and left and rights before the Romans finally came in. And they sealed the deal. They took over. They took charge. They put Israel back in bondage, so to speak, loose bondage. And they began to place uh, Herods, who were kings, all over and kind of be in charge of those of Israel. Oh, it was messy. 400 years they waited. And finally, in Luke chapter 1, in verse 5, there was in the days... Of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias. Of the course of Abia and his wife was the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So she was of the lineage of Aaron, Moses' brother. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and the ordinances of the Lord, blameless. 
But they had no children because that Elizabeth was barren and they both were now well stricken in years. So their older couple never had children because she wasn't able to. And it came to pass, verse 8, that while he executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course, according to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. So here's a guy, Zacharias, just doing his business. He was a priest. He was righteous before God. He was blameless, so he wasn't living a sinless life. He was holy in the sight of God, and just any normal day, he was coming to the temple to give incense, burn incense like he always would. Verse 10. And the whole multitude of the people were praying without at the time of incense. Here it is. 400 years they've been waiting to hear from God. Verse 11, and there appeared unto him an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled. <laughs> Not even, there was a time where angels would kind of show up here and there, and it was kind of a common thing where a prophet would come by and proclaim the word of the Lord. There was a time when all that was a common thing, but 400 something years later, this was not common. It hadn't happened. Uh, it didn't happen to his dad or his dad's dad. It's been generations. And now, here it is. Verse 13. And the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard. And thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. And thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth. For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. And here it is. And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias. That's Elijah. To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the, obedience, and, and, and the disobedience to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. What a, what, a, what a comeback. What a, what, a, what a first pitch of the game. 420 years later, they come back, and an angel fulfills the last prophecy that was mentioned. Because in Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5, if you go back, or you can just listen, it's up to you. But he says, and this is Malachi, his last prophecy, in verse, uh, chapter 4 verse 5. He says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And here it is. He shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers. Wow, that sounds familiar. It says here in verse 17 of, the, of Luke, what we just read. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord and he shall go before him in the spirit of the power of Elias to turn their hearts of the fathers to the children. And the disobedience of the wisdom. It's almost identical. This is the prophecy being fulfilled. This is it. Maybe this isn't the Messiah, but this is, this is first base. He is the forerunner of Christ. What was, after 420 years of waiting, the angel came and said, it's time. He's coming. I've started the clock. Your son is going to be the forerunner. He is going to pave the way. 
for the Messiah to be born. He's coming in this lifetime. He's coming here. He's coming now to a city near you. The Messiah is come. Wow. It's here. This is what we celebrate at Christmas time. The Messiah. His birth. His life. What he means to us. It's not just tradition. It's not just a time to find sales and spend so much money that we actually aren't getting a sale on anything. If you feel that God is silent from your life, remember, he will never leave you nor forsake you. But you know what? Perhaps the real problem isn't God's silence to us. Perhaps the real problem is our silence to God. Perhaps God's been trying to call you. He's been trying to speak to you, but you're not listening. But you're folding your hands. Perhaps you hear the phone ringing. You know he's been speaking to you. Maybe he's, God's calling you to, to get saved, to give your life to him, to confess your sins, to give your life over to Christ and to live for him. Maybe that phone has been ringing, but you just don't want to pick it up. Maybe God's been calling you, but you can't even hear the doorbell ringing because there's so much noise going on in your house. So much noise in your life. You're so busy with this. You're so busy with that. You're not even focused. You're not even thinking. You come to church, but you're not even really paying attention to the preaching. It's kind of just emotion. You, you don't even really read your Bible. You don't really pray. God's trying to speak to you through his word, through the scriptures, and through this and through that, but you're not really giving him time to hear what he's saying. Silence can be a good thing, but it can also be a bad thing. Stand with me as we close our morning service in prayer.